good. Oh, yeah, you still look good. Get your Bibles out tonight. We're going to be in the book of Jude. Thinking about doing the Beatles song tonight, but... Yeah, I don't think that's the Jude that we're talking about here. So... We're going to be in the book of Jude for a little bit here, God willing. We're going to start today with verses 1 through 7. And uh, we're going to get into the meaning of this book and its message as an epistle to the church. I realize these books were written to the early church and they were pertinent. They were not just topical ideas about, you know, anything the apostle had on his mind. This book is written to... The believers for a reason because of things that are happening in the church. You see a lot of things happening in the early church in the formative stage. A lot of heresy, a lot of false teachers, a lot of factions, a lot of divisions, a lot of conflict within the body, struggles for power and uh, leadership bumping heads with one another. These are all things that you know are part of church dynamics. They happen then, they happen now, and that's why this is all still relevant to us. Amen? How many, how many ever thought... Maybe someday you could find the perfect church. All right, no stupid people in here tonight. Everybody knows. There's no perfect church, right? And the joke is that if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Right? So Christians aren't perfect, but they're forgiven. Jesus is perfect. Amen. And so we look to him. Uh, we're going to just read verses 1 through 7 tonight of Jude. In a minute, I'm going to thank God for the word, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you tonight for this time together. We thank you for your word and what it means to us and the power of your word and how it cuts to the bone. It, it answers relevant issues, Lord. It gives us wisdom and it helps us to restrain ourselves and to uh, embrace godliness and holiness. Father, I pray tonight as we study Jude, as we look at these first seven verses tonight, that you would open the book up to us by your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds. Drive the principles that are hidden deep in your word for those who seek you with their whole hearts. Take those principles and drive them deep into us that they would be a part of us for eternity. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jude starts off here. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remain to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, has he kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day? Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way used these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange, 
flesh and exhibited as an example in undergoings the punishment of eternal fire. Let's stop right there. There's more, but that's enough for us to bite off for Wednesday night here. So Jude is the biological brother of Jesus. He's the son of Mary. Now, it's interesting here that Jude doesn't parlay his uh, kinship to Jesus in that way, in a way to elevate himself. He doesn't walk around saying, I'm Jesus' brother. Hey, I'm Jesus' brother. Let me at the front of the line. I'm Jesus' brother. You know, some people take whatever advantages they think they have in life, and they try and exploit them. James shows a lot of humility here in the fact that, I mean, Jude shows a lot of humility here in the fact that he doesn't try to, you know, say, you know, I'm the brother of Jesus. No, he humbles himself. He says he's a brother of James, who is also a brother of Jesus. But what Jude does is he refers to himself as a servant. Did you hear that? He didn't try and push the envelope. He didn't try and make himself more than he was. He said, Jude, a bond servant. What does that mean? A servant that's in bondage to their master, a servant who serves at their master's pleasure. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, not Jesus's little brother. I want you to catch that there. It's important. It shows humility in Jude, and it shows that, you know, he understands his role in serving Jesus. He's a servant. He's, he's not anywhere as equal to him or just because, you know, they grew up in the same house. No, uh, he doesn't try to do that at all. The book of Jude is a short, direct, stern warning against those who cause trouble in the church. Now, if you've been around, maybe you've been to churches where you found troublemakers. Anybody? Amen. Some of you are shaking your head. Some of you are scared to. Some of you are the ones that they threw out, and now you're here. But there again, we said there's people in churches, and people, you know, have issues. And because they have issues, sometimes there's trouble. But Jude is very stern, and it's a warning against those who were creating trouble in the early church, causing division, causing the, uh, doctrinal heresy, causing doubt and unbelief, causing those who were in grace to fall back to legalism. So there's all these things going on in the early church. Jude writes the church to correct the issue. The trouble these people were creating was the, the product of their own false theology, hypocrisy, and divisiveness. You know, some people cause trouble just because, you know, they have personality quirks or they have ego problems. Some people have mental issues. Anybody ever meet somebody like that? Amen. I mean, we deal with all kinds of people, correct? And so, you know, for whatever reason, there was trouble, but the trouble that was being created here was not an accident. It was not a personality issue. No, there was, it was a theological attack. It was rooted in hypocrisy, and there was division being created. How many understand every time you, you see division in the church, you don't have to dig hard to find the enemy. The devil wants to divide the body of Christ Wednesday night, Amen. He don't care if you carry a Bible, doesn't care if you call yourself a Christian. He doesn't care how many verses you memorize. But when you come together with the people of God and there's unity, he's intimidated. And so he wants to destroy that unity. And that's what the attack here is in the early church, and it's what the attack is in the contemporary church. It's an attack against the unity that comes from being one in Jesus Christ. These people were not creating trouble just because they were quirky or had, you know, uh, some sort of issues. No, it was, it was demonically inspired and it had a purpose. Jude serves up 25 verses uh, and, and, he, and he serves them up pretty hot in some spots. 
to reject and resist these people who are bringing the trouble and division. He wants the early church believers to hold fast to the doctrine that they received from the apostles, amen? The apostles' doctrine is the foundation of the church, period. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel and the foundation of the church, period. There's no addition to the gospel. There's no new gospel. There's no gospel part two. We're going to talk about this. Uh, you know, Paul warns in other places in Scripture, we're warned that if, if they bring another gospel besides the gospel that was preached at the foundational level, let them be accursed. It's not from God, amen? All these people that say, well, I heard from an angel. I heard from this and I heard from that. And they wrote a book and they, you, you got Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and every, every kind of cult and world religion that's out there. They got, a, they got a story that is in addition to the revelation that came through Jesus Christ. And unequivocally, 100% of the time, God warned his people not to believe the lie. So Jude serves it up, 25 verses, hot, to reject and resist false teachers and false teaching. It's not enough to shake your head at them. It's not enough to disagree with them. No, the church has to root them out because like leaven, they will bring a sickness to the body of Christ. Verse 1 and 2 serves as a greeting here. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. We talked about the fact that Jude was Jesus's little brother here, or, or he was Jesus's brother, not little brother, but, you know, uh, where he fell in the line there. He didn't try to make that a big issue. He's a humble guy. He understands who Jesus is now. You know, realize Jesus's family was confused about him many times. You know, you didn't know where they were at or what his brothers and sisters thought. We can understand that. But Jude gets a hold of it here. He he brings this greeting here, clarifying that he's a servant, a bond servant. So that's his heart. He's a servant. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle in the early church, and he's ministering to the body. His blessing is mercy, peace, and love. Who likes that blessing? Amen. Come on, the rest of you alive out there. Mercy, peace, and that's the kind of blessing I like. Amen. You know, some people give you a blessing, and you have to think about it. Is that really a blessing? You know, mercy, we need mercy. Peace, oh, how can you put a price tag on peace? And love, everybody wants to be loved. Beautiful blessing, nice start to the book. But in verse 3, he gets right down to business. Now, Jude is short. There's some serious issues at hand here. He gets right down to business. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So take, let's take a look at that. Jude's writing to the saved, and I want you to get that. He's not, he's not writing to the lost here. He's writing to the saved. He's writing to those who have already believed and have formed the early church. So this book is not evangelistic in that it's an outreach to unbelievers. It's apostolic in the sense where now he's functioning as an apostle to deliver sound doctrine to the church to keep them from straying from the faith. That's what apostles do. Apostles are leaders of leaders. They pastor pastors. They uh, preside over churches. Why? Because churches need to have a commonality of leadership in the sense where the doctrine keeps from you know, getting twisted. How many know if you leave people to their own devices and their own flesh and their own opinions, you, you're going to have a whole mess in the church. 
We don't need the opinions of men in the church. We don't need, you know, we don't need uh, uh, little enclaves and little schisms and this split and that split. We need sound biblical doctrine from the top down. Now, denominationalism makes a mess in the church. Why? Well, I don't believe that, so I'm going to go start my own church. Well, you guys speak in tongues. You can go over there. We don't. We're going to go over there. And we divide over everything. And I understand Baskin-Robbins has 31 flavors. Do they have more than that now? No, you wouldn't like it if there was just one flavor of ice cream, right? Anybody like ice cream? Seen pictures, licked one once, yeah. Thank God there's more than just vanilla, right? So I get it that there's different styles of church, different worship styles, different things. That's fine. But we can't have different doctrine. We get to the point there's some things we can agree to disagree about, but there's some things that are foundational that once you throw that out, you're no longer part of the body of Christ. And there's some of that going on out there, and certainly there was some of that going on in the early church here. So it's not an, an evangelistic book. It's an apostolic book letter here. The, the epistle is to straighten out the doctrine and make sure it's sound, to refute false teaching within the body of Christ. That's still a very important ministry for leadership in the church, to keep the doctrine sound. Someone say amen. Now, he wanted believers to be ready and willing and able to contend for the faith by rejecting the false and the false teachers. Now, look what it says here. Should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So, you know, we've got our faith through the apostles' doctrine, and you guys who are believers in the church, you need to be willing to earnestly contend for the faith. What does that word contend mean? It's from the Greek word, apognonitsae, and it means to struggle for or to defend. We as believers need to struggle to preserve sound doctrine in our lives and in the church. We as believers need to contend, to fight, to stand our ground, to make a ready defense of the gospel. When someone says to you, what do you believe? Look, you don't have to be a Bible scholar and give them Greek and Hebrew, but you need to be able to give them the gospel in a nutshell. Every single one of you. Not just me, hang on, let me call my pastor. No, you can't do that. You make a ready defense for the faith. You contend for the faith. Jude couldn't be there right then. There was trouble in the church. There, there needed to be mature enough believers who had a handle on the doctrine enough to stand up and refute the false. Because if they didn't or wouldn't, it would spread like a cancer and kill the faith of fledgling believers. You know who's at biggest risk to, you know, false doctrine and false teaching and false teachers? Baby Christians. Baby Christians that are just new and they're just saved and they're still, they're still untaught and they're still getting used to things and they still got a lot of flesh. Look, I've been around the block. I've seen it a lot. I've seen people come into the church, come into the body, come into schools, come into dominations and like wolves woo the, the young ones, the younglings away, the, the ones that, and put an offense in them or, or start whispering things in their ear about leadership. And before you know it, they've gathered a little flock for themselves. And the next thing they know, they've divided the church. And I know we'd rather hear about something happy and clappy tonight. But the truth is we need this because we're the ones who need to stand up and refute the faults, to contend for the faith. Now, in 2 Timothy 4 through 5, the Apostle Paul urges Timothy, he says, Timothy, do the work 
of an evangelist. And certainly, all of us should do that. Paul is right. He's grooming Timothy. Timothy's a son in the faith. He's a pastor. And, and Paul, the apostle, is grooming him for his departure. Paul knows, I'm not going to be here forever. I got to put good things into Timothy. And so he says, do the work of the evangelist. Now, here in the book of Jude, the apostle Jude urges us with equal fervor to do the work of an apologist. When he says to contend for the faith, what he's talking about is apologetics. Now, let me just give you uh, the, the working definition of what an apologist is. We are all to be apologists for the faith. Now, that doesn't mean you go around apologizing, I'm sorry I'm a Christian. I'm sorry I'm offensive. I'm sorry the cross offends you. No, that's not what apologetics is. Apologetics is a defense of the faith. The word means uh, using reasoned arguments to defend something of religious or spiritual doctrines or systems. Christian apologetics is a defense of the faith, that we understand the basic structure of our faith. We understand the Trinity to a degree, the personhood of Jesus, the mission of the cross, the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus died, he rose again, and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Come on, basics, amen, that we would be able to give a ready defense of those things. Now, I know you might think, well, that's a little intimidating, or I'm not sure if I'm qualified for that, but listen to me. I guarantee you, if you've been sitting here long enough, you are full of a lot of good doctrine. You might have been full of it when you came in, but you got more since you've been here, amen? That's not what I meant by that, but, (laughs) you know, every time, you know, you come to a place, God moves you, whatever, he's putting more good, sound, solid doctrine in you, and you're filled with it, so... Don't underestimate what the Holy Spirit has deposited in your heart. You know more than you think you do. And if you would dare just be a little gutsy for the kingdom of God and open your mouth, I guarantee it, God will fill it. And some things are going to come out of you that are going to surprise you. (laughs) I remember witnessing as a young man to people and scriptures are coming out and things and arguments. I'm like, where did that come from? I'm just like a hose. It's flying out. What's that? That's the Holy Ghost, amen? But we're to be apologists. We're, we're to defend the faith. Christian apologetics is an entire branch of theology. It uses arguments and intellectual reasoning and logic to defend the faith against intellectual criticism. There's a whole order of criticism against Christianity called higher criticism and skepticism. And you, you've got these intellectuals who attack the faith. You know, much of this started in Germany and Uh, with existentialism and Nietzsche and all this. There's been higher criticism for a long time, but realize there are people that all they want to do is pick apart the faith. Say, well, some of them are really smart and they have PhDs and they know more than me, but you got the Holy Ghost. And greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So Christian apologetics, making a ready defense of the faith, the way that Jude puts it here is earnestly contend for the faith. Now, Verse 4 is an explanation of who the, who the people were that were creating trouble. Now, Jude doesn't mention them by name, but he describes their character. And, you know, the first thing we, we need to know is how they got there. How do, how do troublemakers get in? Well, it's, it says in verse 4 that they crept in unaware. Isn't that interesting? They didn't, you know, they weren't invited. They weren't you know, brought in, but they kind of just slipped in there. Now, when you think about this, it's, 
It's how the enemy operates. He's a sneak. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a cheat. And so when he wants to corrupt the church, what does he do? He sneaks something in there. And he'll sneak a person in there, a person with wrong attitudes, wrong motives, with wrong beliefs. It says here, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In there is a description of the faults and how it operates and what it looks like and the marks of the character of those people who are false. So the first thing you got to know is they creep in. Now, don't be naive. There will always be people in church with wrong motives and wrong attitudes. I've seen people in church for all kinds of reasons, social. I've seen people in church because they wanted to, you know, find somebody to marry. Be careful, young ladies. I've seen people in church, you know, who, who had wrong motives, who, you know, want to get involved with children's ministry or youth ministry. That's why we vet very carefully those that we allow to work with our children. Are you getting what I'm saying here? No, I don't want you to walk around suspicious like, who are you? What are you doing? Why were you talking? No, l- l- that's not the way we operate. But we do have to move in a level of discernment. Amen. And just because it walks in with a Bible and it smells nice because they got good cologne on doesn't mean they're born again believer filled with the Holy Spirit with the right motives and intentions. They creep in. And over the years, we've had to catch some of them and creep them back out. And you can ask my wife or you can ask anyone who's close to me. Uh, you know, I'm a shepherd. I love sheep, but I don't like wolves. And when, and when I'm like David, uh, you know, lions and bears and wolves, yeah, I got them tacked on my wall, and I'm not going to put up with them here. So understand, I've had, you know, people come in with religious spirits, with Jezebel spirits, wanting to control. I had people <laughs> come in, you know, with all, all kinds of motivations uh, to get in leadership, to become a, a pastor here, to take the pulpit away from me. <laughs> you can have it. But this stuff happens. Now, you know, I know we don't like to think about it to a certain degree, but we got to be mature enough to entertain the possibility that it happens. And when it does happen, we shouldn't be shaken by it. Oh, I can't believe it. It's, it's incredible. Not really. The word warns us. Sadly, these wrong people who creep in, some of them sit in the pews of the churches, and some of them are behind pulpits of the churches. There's a lot of leaders out there that, you know, they're not real shepherds. Just because you get a five-by-seven certificate suitable for framing that says you're allowed to preach doesn't mean you're called of God or anointed or filled with the Holy Spirit. Hello? And so understand, people do this all the time. I see it. They start their own churches with leadership that's untrained, unvetted. They're uneducated. They, They don't have a solid grasp of theology. They have no anointing to preach, but they're charismatic, and they can manipulate others. Oh, Wednesday night, you're dead. Let me just keep moving here. Hopefully, you'll never have to experience any of this, but uh, the Word's got it in here. So we need to be be aware that it's in the pulpit and it's in the pews. People's motives uh, may not be obvious at first. Don't feel bad if you get a little confused by people. Did you ever ever look at someone and think, oh, they're a nice person, and realize, holy cannoli, they're like a wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, at first, you're like, man, how did that get by me? They creep in. 
They're sneaky. They're seductive. The, the enemy is not stupid. He knows how to slip them in there. So we watch for it. Number two, how did these be, people come twisted in their motives and doctrine? Well, these particular offenders that were in this situation that Jude is talking about here, they were troubling the believers like Judas in that it was their destiny to, uh, to create conflict in the church. It's what they were there for. Look what the text says. Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. You know, Judas had the wrong motives from the beginning. Jesus said he went the way he was destined to go. Did you hear that? Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying God makes people to go to hell and he, you know, he said, well, I'm making Judas and he's good. No, he understands, you know, what their decisions are going to be, but he still gives them free will. He still gives them a chance at life. But there are some people who have rotten motives from the beginning. Judas had rotten motives from the minute he was with Jesus. Yeah, he watched the miracles. He participated, but he was looking for an opportunity to betray him. Why? Because he thought he could parlay it into a financial reward for himself. And Judas loved money more than he loved God. So these people who are creating problems here, it says who before of old were ordained to this condemnation. So, you know, they, they had rotten intentions from the start. Satan has been doing this uh, with the things of God and in the kingdom of God since Genesis chapter 3. He's been resisting those who were prophetically said to be able to crush his head. In Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God pronounced the judgment on the serpent after he led Adam and Eve into sin. It says this in Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is this talking about here? This is, there's a lot of things going on in there, but when you boil this all down, it's a messianic prophecy that the, the curse on the, on the devil was that Jesus was going to come and crush his head. All the enemy was going to do was strike at his heel, you know, but Jesus was going to crush his head. How? By destroying his kingdom. How? By disarming his greatest weapon, the power of sin over the lives of men. So from Genesis 3, the devil knew he was doomed and he was in trouble. And so he resisted everything that had to do with the kingdom of God, particularly those who would be born into the kingdom, any one of which could be the Messiah that would crush his head. Are you getting this? So there are people, you know, uh, who have bad intentions and, and, and what's behind it? It's the enemy fueling it. Why? Because he wants to resist the kingdom of God. Why? Because he knows it's his undoing. Resistance that we face in the church is not because of us. Resistance that we face for being Christians is not because of us. It's because of Christ in us. If you're out there and say, the devil leaves me alone, you better make sure you're saved. Oh, the devil never bothers me. Well, you, you, then you're no threat to him. But if you are a Christian and you're living for God and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're doing the will of God for your life, you better believe he's resisting you at every turn. You say, why? Because he is opposed to the kingdom of God because he knows the kingdom of God is his undoing. God didn't make these people just to create trouble in the church. 
they made that choice themselves. God doesn't make people just to go to send them to hell. Uh, he doesn't preordain people to be lost. Anyone who's lost is because they made a decision of their free will to reject Jesus Christ. Get that in your head, amen? Uh, you know, there's all kinds of doctrines and things where people get tripped up and predestination and, you know, well, you know, if God knew that the person was going to reject him, why did he make him? And, you know, there's all these arguments, but God gives each of us a free will and a choice. He knows what we're going to choose, but he still gives us life and he still gives us a choice. Number three, we're going to look at uh, some of the marks of a false teacher's character. They're listed here. Uh, the marks of a false teacher's character. And the number one mark is they are ungodly men. They're ungodly. Uh, what does that mean, ungodliness? Ungodliness is more than, you know, well, they smoke and they drink and they cuss. No, there's people who don't smoke and drink and cuss, but they are thoroughly ungodly. Amen. We make this so, you know, we make it so actions and, well, you know, they look like this and they have long hair and, you know, they, and, and we get caught in the exterior. God doesn't look at the exterior, even the actions. People struggle with all kinds of things, you know, but the person uh, who is ungodly, it's deeper than that exterior. It's internal. It's a selfishness and a refusal to serve. It's a refusal to bow the knee to Jesus and to be humble and to love others. Ungodliness at its core is selfishness. Selfish people refuse to serve anybody but themselves, including God. And that's what ungodliness is. So one of the marks of a false teacher's character is that they are going to be ungodly and thoroughly self-centered. And it's not about them serving you ever. It's about you serving them. So when you see that mark in a person who calls themselves a Christian, when you see that mark in a person who calls himself a pastor, and they always demand to be served and carry my bag and drive me here and do this for me and do that for me. Maybe some of you have never seen this stuff. There again, I've been around the block, and I just want to tell you, it's out there. And it's ungodly. And we should be able to discern it because it's the mark of the false. Number two, the second mark of the false teacher's character is this. They're grace killers. Look what it says here. Turning the grace of our God. What do they do? They pervert grace. They, they, they twist grace. They use it for their own benefit. False teachers, perver per they, they, they pervert grace in two ways. They either turn it into a works-based legalism or a license to sin. One of the two extremes. That's what false teachers do. Either everything is legalistic and you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this and you can't look like that and you can't go there and, and they got a whole bunch of rules and we're going to find out those rules are only for you they have our own set of rules for themselves the other side of the pendulum when it comes to the false some of you have sat in ministries under bad leadership you've sat with people that had fall and now the light's going on for you right now as you're sitting here you're getting it the word has warned us now we're adding wisdom to ourselves here so we, we can have the sermon. But they are grace killers. So if they don't make it all about legalism, then, then they go to the other extreme, which they make it a license to sin. You could do whatever you want. It's all grace, hyper grace, 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 nothing but grace. God doesn't judge anybody. God doesn't have any demands. You could do whatever you want. It's all grace. You can hardly turn in some of these programs that pass for Christian TV without hearing some of these hyper-grace guys. And I wonder what Bible they're reading from. 
Because my Bible doesn't teach that hyper-grace doctrine. It teaches holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You can't be in all kinds of sin up to your neck and make it a lifestyle and expect to, you know, God to just wink at it. Come on, Wednesday night. I got two feet tonight. You're not, you're not ready for me, huh? So they're grace killers. They pervert grace. Number three, they're lascivious. They're lascivious in their conduct. A person who is lascivious is driven by lewd, lustful, and improper sexual thoughts or actions. What, one of the marks of the false teachers, of the false prophets, of the fake preachers and, 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 and ministries that are ungodly, that are just fleecing people for money, is you're going to find sexual immorality in those things. If you dig and you get close enough and you get behind the curtain, you're going to find it there. Why? Because it's one of the marks of false teachers. They preach, you know, a stringent set of rules for everybody else, but they got their own rules for themselves. Understand, lasciviousness is part of the warning here. Uh, now, people who make excuses for or legitimize what the Scripture clearly defines as immorality are not fit to be leaders in the body of Christ. People who make excuses for or try and explain away what the Bible says is sin are not fit to be leaders in the body of Christ. If you move, if you go somewhere, you escape New Yorkistan and you go down south and you find yourself in a church and you pick up any of this stuff, if you, if you, find, you get up and get out of there and shake the dust off your, off your shoes and get out. Don't tolerate it. Look, I've seen people say, oh, well, you know, everybody has issues and, and this person's being used and, oh, they have a great anointing. Look, if there's immorality there, that has no business being in a person who's in leadership in the body of Christ. And Jude is warning them here. They're going to be full of sin. They're going to be ungodly. They're going to pervert grace. They're going to be lasciviousness. They're, there's going to be immorality there. Sin is not to be explained away or justified. It's to be repented of. And if we won't repent of it, it will bring the death that Romans 6.23 promises. The wages of sin is death. So some of the marks here, you know, they're, again, they're, they're, they're a little scary in a sense, and, you know, we don't like to think about these things, but Jude is warning us and Scripture is warning us to look for these marks in, uh, in the church and in leadership and in people, and if you see them there, uh, be very, very careful. Uh, the last mark here is that they were challenging the lordship of Jesus Christ. It says, what, that they were denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' lordship, the fact that he is Lord of all, is the key to having a real soul-saving relationship with him. You cannot have a real, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ if you think he is something else than what the Bible says he is. He's not just a good man. He's not just a prophet. He's, just not, he's not just a wise teacher. He is God. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is Lord. And until we understand his lordship, we can't have a real relationship with other people. Oh, I'm spiritual. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Krishna. I believe in this. I believe in, I got beads and crystals. And He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And so these guys attack the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, it absolutely makes sense why they would, because 
If you muddy up who Jesus is and you confuse all the people around you, they won't serve Jesus. They might serve you. And that's the mark of a false teacher. They want to be served. They want to be Lord. Like Satan, they want to be God. They were ungodly. They turned the grace of God and they perverted it. They were lascivious and they denied the lordship of Jesus Christ. And those are the marks of the false. Verses 5 through 7 here give three biblical examples of what the troublemakers were like, you know, from scriptural examples here, and, and even what their end would be. Example number one comes to us in verse 5. Are, are you reading it with me? It says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Let's just stop right there. Verse 5. Verse 5 is the first biblical example that Jude gives as a warning about these false teachers and what they produce. Uh, The example is a reminder about those who died in the wilderness. And look at that. The Lord having saved the people. So God saves all the people out of Egypt. But then you remember, they all died off in the wilderness. Only Joshua Joshua and Caleb made it out alive in that generation. The two that gave a good report and had faith in God. Everybody else who murmured and grumbled and complained and we don't want any more manna, we want quail, we've had enough quail, we want something else. You remember all that? God marched them around in circles in the desert until what? Until they all died off. So Jude is making the the argument here as a warning that if God who saved people and brought them out of bondage when they refused to submit to him and serve him in purity and have a relationship with him and have faith, he he allowed them to die off. So think about that. If God would go through all that, 10 plagues to get them out, and then still, because of their their unbelief and their lack of faith, allow them to die off, that's a stern warning to all of us, amen? Oh, well, you don't know what God did to save me. You don't know how how deep I was in. You don't know. Listen, that's great, and that's wonderful, and and, and you're saved, and you're out of the ditch, and you're out of Egypt, and you're out of the hole, but you still got to live right, and you still got to have faith, and you still got to have a relationship with Jesus Christ because if you give yourself over to sin and you go back to Egypt, the wages of sin are death. And he's saying here, you know, he brought them out of Egypt, and, and... and, and they, they wouldn't listen, and they wouldn't obey, and they wouldn't have faith, and so he killed them off in the desert. I don't know about you, but that, that's a stern warning to me. Now, I know it's Old Testament, and I know there's grace, and I know there's the keeping power of Jesus Christ, but still, it should, it should make us sober to think about how intense God was even after he went through all that with them because they wouldn't have faith in him. They died off. Remember, Jude told us that the deceivers creep in. You know, when he saved all those people out of Egypt, he saved them all. There was ones with good motives. There was ones with rotten motives. There was ones that didn't want anything to do with God. There were good apples and bad apples in the bunch. And a lot of times, that's the way it is in churches. You got people with the right heart, with the right faith, with the right intentions. And then you got people who just are there for the wrong reasons. Okay, so people who make doctrinal, moral, and social trouble in the church could have been corrupt from the beginning, or they could have started off with a right heart and became corrupt for many different reasons. It's wonderful 
to be in church. It's wonderful to be part of a local body of believers. It was wonderful for the Jews to come out of Egypt and to be freed from slavery, but it's a horrible thing to be so stubborn and rebellious to God that you wind up dying in the wilderness while sitting in church. Wow. God have mercy on us. It's all about keeping our hearts right before the Lord. Amen. Example number two comes to us in verse six. It says, In the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved for everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So the second example <coughs> is about the angels that fell. Now, if it's not bad enough that people who got saved out of Egypt by 10 miracles didn't have faith in God and they, they fell in the wilderness, this should be even more sobering. Even angels that do the wrong thing, God doesn't spare judgment over. And Jude uses this as an example. Here, he refers to the fallen angels as an example of those who started off in perfection. I mean, they were created beings of God in the heavens. They saw God. They, they had this relationship with him. They ministered before him. They started off so incredibly well, but they finished so badly. Angels fell in heaven. Angels rebelled against God. Angels have no ability to repent and be forgiven. Why? Because they had a level of understanding that transcends human understanding, and they knew exactly what they were doing when they made their choice. That's why angels can't be saved. The angels that fell are forever demons, and they're eternally damned. The devil and the demons hate people. Why? Because we have a chance to be saved, and they don't. So here's Jude using this example of the fallen angels. They started off so well, but they finished bad. They didn't keep their first estate. <coughs> they, they, they strayed away from what they were created to do. Let's talk about angels a little bit here. Angels were created to be ministering beings. They're ministering beings. They're servants of God. They serve God's agenda, not their own agenda. They were to be submitted to God, not driven by their own desires. So that was their function. That was their purpose. They were to serve God and serve his purposes. Now, they were created to minister, to minister to you and I, to serve the purposes of God. So what happened? Lucifer, who became Satan, inflamed by his own pride, decided that he didn't want to serve the purposes of God anymore. In fact, he decided he wanted to be God. He said, I'm going to sit on high. I'm going to be like the most high. I'm going to be God. And the Bible says that Satan fell from heaven like lightning. Jesus said, I saw him fall like lightning. Boom, what happened? His pride inflamed, he rebelled against God, and in an instant, he falls down and he's cast out of heaven to earth. And so when this happened here, a third of the angels were seduced by Satan's sedition, and they decided they didn't want to serve God anymore, but they wanted to, they wanted to do what he had done, so they fell with him. So now we have Lucifer, the head of worship, in heaven falling, and a third of the angels choosing to rebel against God and fall with him. Yeah, it's quiet because it's a sober moment, isn't it? If angels who have a clear picture and a clear understanding can be deceived by pride and reap eternal judgment, how much more vulnerable are we who are controlled by our emotions and our flesh and our, the opinions of men? Wow. It's a sobering thing here. 
But a third of the angels fell. And Jude is saying, look, God didn't spare those in the wilderness who rebelled and refused to have faith. God didn't spare those who rebelled against God and chose to do their own thing. And example number three, and we'll close with this tonight, is in verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So we had those coming out of Egypt. Then we had the angels falling. Now we have the city that represents the pinnacle of immorality and sexual unrestraint, Sodom and Gomorrah. They're the last example that Jude uses as a warning to those who would be false and lead people astray in the church. So, you know, Jude is trying to make a very stern point here from Scripture not to mess with God and not to mess with things that are perverse. Why? Because judgment is attached to those things. And it's wise for us to notice that, you know, the snare of immorality is something that ruins a lot of believers' souls. The fact that our world is so sexualized and unrestrained, the fact that our world wants to drift away from the sound Judeo-Christian ethics that have made this nation great and redefine gender and redefine sexuality and redefine marriage and, and have an anything-goes attitude should be a real serious indicator that not only are we in the last days, but it's a very serious time for us and our families and the church. Because churches are dropping like flies to the pressure uh, of immorality here because it's so pervasive, it's so forceful, it's everywhere, it's in everything, that's, that some of them are just bowing to it. And Jude is warning here that, you know, immorality will snare and ruin the souls of men. Sodom and Gomorrah is the universal symbol of sexual perversion and unrestraint. The things that they did there <clears throat> were so perverse, God had no choice but to judge them. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. One city turns into two cities, turns into a nation, turns into a continent, turns into the world. Do you see how sin spreads? That's why, we, that's why we have to stand against sin in the church. Well, let's just accept everybody and let, let's let anybody in and let's just ignore it. Let, let's just let God sort it out. Our job is just to love them. Well, you're not fit for leadership if you believe that. Because if you let that in the church, it, the level of it will spread through the church and it'll snare the souls of the sheep you're supposed to protect and defend. So here, you know, there's a lot of warnings here. There's a lot of warnings against immorality. It's deceptive. It's pervasive. It's all around us. It seems normal, but yet God is very serious about it. He, he judged those cities. He completely destroyed them. Remember, one of the marks of false teachers is that they're lascivious. If you get behind their facade, you're going to see very loose morals. You're going to see them engaged in behaviors that the Scripture says is immoral. Now, these hypocrites will have one set of standards for themselves and one set of standards for you. They'll preach from the pulpit, you can't do this and you can't do that. But behind closed doors, they're doing this and that. And it's okay for them. Quiet now. But this was the warning here, and these were the people that they were dealing with. They were lascivious, and here's a, a warning using Sodom and Gomorrah about, you know, immorality here. And I want, I want to encourage you, dear saints, drive immorality far away from yourself. Whatever 
whatever causes you to fall into immorality, if it's your computer, if it's your phone, if it's people you hang around, if it's places you go, Jesus said it'd be better to pluck your eye out or to cut your hand off, to lose one member. I think about this all the time. There's some days that I feel like I need to do some plucking and cutting. Anybody? Man, you just drive down the street. It's everywhere. Don't look at me like that. I mean, we don't know what you're talking about. You know, when I think about that, Jesus said, it would be better for you to, you know, go through life missing a hand than it would for you to burn in eternity for, you know, for that sin. Serious, amen? We don't like talking about this stuff. We like the happy, clappy, goosebumpy, lay hands on us, make us laugh, tell us a couple jokes. But Jude is being dead serious here. Why? Because the soul of the church hang, hangs in the balance here because if, if these things are allowed in, they'll, they'll just... The leaven of it will ruin what's going on. Let's keep our hearts right and stay close to Jesus, amen, to avoid all of these things, those people that came out of Egypt, but Egypt never came out of them, and they died in the wilderness. Those angels that decided they didn't want to serve God anymore. Look, we should always check our hearts. Are we serving God, or are we serving our own interests? I, I dare say there are churches full of people that are so much more concerned about their own interest in serving in the kingdom, that we need a gut check in America right now. It's all hands on deck, amen? And for that immorality that was seen in the early church there, in those false teachers, in those false movements, uh, we need to be very careful that we don't stray from biblical morality. Though none of us are perfect and none of us, you know, have it 100%, when we sin, we repent. We don't make sin a lifestyle, amen? When we, we make sin a lifestyle, it, it will control us and destroy us, and it'll rob our joy. So first seven verses of Jude, get the ball rolling here. We understand that we're to be apologists. We're to contend for the faith. So you have an assignment. You make a ready defense of your faith. When someone asks, when someone has a question, now I'm not telling you to get in every fight you can possibly get in on social media. Okay, but let the Holy Spirit use you to, to, to defend the faith and to talk about your faith in Jesus Christ. The most powerful thing you have is not theology or your intellect or your theological arguments. It's your testimony. Share your testimony. Oh, I don't believe in God and the Bible is fake and you Christians are all hypocrites. Yeah, I, I was once hooked on drugs and God set me free. I was once in jail. And, I, and, and share your testimony. Maybe you weren't hooked on drugs. Maybe you weren't in jail. But you've got a testimony. And nobody can argue with your testimony. And I hear people say, I don't believe this and I don't believe that. And you guys are all stupid for going to church. But then you share your testimony and they just look at you. And when you leave, it's working on the inside. Amen. So we're apologists and understand that and Understand the nature of the faults and, and the marks of the faults and understand the sin that accompanies false teachers and false doctrine and false religion. You say, you know, oh, Pastor, there's none of this stuff around or we stay away from those groups, but where would we come in contact with the false? Look, the false doctrines and the false teachings are being taught to our children in school. They're being, they're being taught in our towns, in our public squares. Our neighbors believe them. It's everywhere. So we have an opportunity to be light in the darkness. Amen. All right, Wednesday night, put your hands together and clap for Jesus.